Hey guys, welcome back to another edition of the Detour Live. Thanks for joining us. And uh, also, thanks for subscribing to the channel, youtube.com forward slash the Detour Podcast. It's all making a difference and we really do appreciate it. I'm your host, Dan Jones, and joined as always by four time national road champion Johnny Tarot. Now, if he, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, I got on Wikipedia because a very special guest tonight is uh, also a national road title winner in 1989, Gary Clively. And when I searched it, it had on Wikipedia, you're only listed as a three-time national winner. Where'd you, where'd you pinch the fourth? Because I want to make sure that we haven't been lying for all these episodes. Uh, you can't trust Wikipedia because they spoke, uh, they spelt Gary's name wrong as well. But uh, now, so I won my first one as an amateur in 1970, which set me to the games, and then I won three pro titles in a row. So they only they forgot about the first one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you might want to get that fixed go. because it's making me look oh, like a liar every night. Big stage overnight. There's a lot to unpack before we bring on our guests. But uh, fantastic win to Bardet. Uh, it's his first World Tour win in four years, I see. And um, we did predict it thanks to, I think it was Annette who said Bardet was a, a good chance of winning the stage. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I thought uh, she was spot on too. I should have uh, kept and backed it myself. But anyway, yeah, mm. fantastic ride. But look, I thought. Um, because our special guest is uh, is the first Australian to finish top 10 of a Grand Tour and, of course, first Australian to finish top 10 in the Vuelta, which he did in uh, 1976. I think, what's he at? 76? 70, um, 77. Sorry? 77? Okay. Oh, well, never let the facts get away with a good story. And I've, I haven't had to research much of this because I know the Gary Cliver story so well. well clearly um, you haven't. Well... Yeah, years, yeah. 75, 76, 77. That's right. 76, he rode the Giro, and 77, he, he rode the uh, uh, the Vuelta. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, as a 20-year-old in the in the Giro and 21-year-old in the Vuelta. Um, but I thought, who better to talk about the stage that, uh, with other than, than Gary? So I thought we could talk to do Gary. What? Do we want to show the, the show, show the video first of, of Gary? You're all over yeah. the shop tonight, mate. I thought we had a plan. That was the plan. Show the video. Not talk okay. about the stage. So, all right. I, I thought it... we were going to talk about the stage first, and now you're changing it. That's all right. We'll carry on. <laughs> See, you know what? You know what? You know what? You know what? Doug said. The tour. Stage 14 <laughs> was when we start going the biffo because we're all a little bit cooked. But uh, let's just let's turn it around. Let's get positive. Well, but, but before you hit the button on the video, because yes. uh, it was about three or four years ago, uh, Scotty McGrory uh, was doing hosting this show with Gatesy that they were doing. I think it was for SBS. And I used full to have cycle. a little – Full cycle. Full cycle, that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and I used to have a little segment in it as an old fart and we'd interview different people. And that – that this little part came from that show. I can understand any rider who's got that cycling bug, love of cycling, um, being competitive, uh, wanting to give your best, and uh, you know things happen out there in cycle races where. You're really, uh, you're left alone with your effort. It can teach you a hell of a lot about yourself. Mm. I think it's a great sport for that too. Yeah, Gary Clively, I tell you, that is, uh, it's an amazing story. 
So I went to Europe, I think he turned 19 when he got over there, and um, went and raced a little bit in Italy, got noticed, went, rode the World Championships from Belgium, I think that year, and finished fourth in the World Amateur Road title. It's just a young kid. So then the Italians started to take notice of him. He got a pro contract. So at 20 years of age, he gets a pro contract. That didn't happen back in those days. Rode his first Grand Tour, the, the Vuelta. Amazing. Finished top 10. It probably wasn't that year at the level of Tour de France, but you know, it was a hard three week race. It was hot and it was stages very long, 240, 250Ks. Uh, we finished the last week in the Pyrenees. I got punched in the head by one of the, by one of the good Italian riders because uh, I came underneath him uh, on a corner on one of the last climbs, he looked like he was losing the wheel and I just sort of ducked underneath him and he really didn't like it and he came up behind me once it leveled out and punched me in the head and I learned that you know these guys are pretty tough and uh, they're not going to take anything from a young upstart. And there was legendary shots of him climbing the top of mountains with Eddie Merckx and Francesco Moser, I mean just stunning stuff and then within a year from that he just got disillusioned and gave it away. After I quit cycling, um, there was a long period of time where um, I was asking myself a lot of questions and uh, yeah, I learned things like meditation and um, sort of uh, about spiritual life, um, which helped me a lot. Um, it helped me, it helped me to get over cycling, which, you know, uh, I know that I really loved passionately. Um, at the same time, it sort of helped me get my feet on the ground and be uh, more of a, maybe a normal person. I think Dave Sanders got him a job uh, working in his bike shop, a bit of part-time, down at Chelsea, so he used to catch the train down. Dave said, well, here's an old bike, why don't you ride in? So he started riding into work, fell in love with cycling again. That year, started racing, legendary stories of his comeback after 10 years, more than 10 years off the bike and that, by the end of that year he won the Australian road title. Something came over me, you know, and maybe it was because I knew my mother was at the finish, not sure why, but uh, yeah, I just, uh, I just felt really good and I hit out early and yeah, I beat them. They must have been shocked. They were, and there was a few expletives after the line too about it, so yeah, but uh, I think it was a fair race. No regrets? No. You really learn a lot about yourself and uh, surviving. Fantastic piece there, Ify. Really uh, touches on the heartstrings with the music as well. You know, music plays yeah. a big part with those little clips. But uh, it's an amazing story, amazing, amazing story, yeah, and a beautiful story. And uh, congratulations, to SP, uh, who uh, put most of that together for Gatesy. So there you go. So uh, I, I know that uh, we've got Gary sitting in the wing, so we should bring him in. But the one thing that didn't get, uh, uh, g'day, Gary, how are you, mate? Oh no, the audio. You there? Can you hear us? Yeah, push oh. the push uh, your the mic's uh, muted. Welcome to the detour, mate. <laughs> this is usually how it goes down with the technical <laughs> side of things. Uh, I think your mic's still on, still on mute, mate. 
So at the bottom of the screen, you'll see a little... Yeah, mirror. okay. There we okay. go. Welcome to the detail. Sorry. That's how we do an introduction. No, no, no. <laughs> Normally, we yeah. have glitches. Normally, it's either Dan or myself. Normally, me. Mm. Uh, who, who, who does that? So, uh, welcome aboard, Gary. Um, thank you, uh, thank you. I've caught up with you for a few months with lockdown and everything. Mm -hmm. I remember catching up. We had a little party at Gordon John's place a few months back, which was fantastic. We were caught yeah, up. Yeah, it was a great day, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to touch yeah, one thing. Uh, the one thing we didn't touch on in that uh, just quick story and what started it all. I remember I'd been racing in Europe in '73. Came home and we had the uh, Victorian Championships, which was a test race to pick the Victorian team to go on to race in the Australian Championships, uh, which was selection for the Commonwealth Games in, in Christchurch in '74. And I yeah. remember most of us who'd been racing in Europe, you were all pretty cooked. Uh, came back and uh, uh, I think I managed to finish that Vicky title just, but I couldn't get out of my own way. But I remember noticing you, you you were, uh, uh, um, you looked so good on a bike. You looked like a European pro just the way you ride. That's a great shot of you in that uh, Australian titles with Ted Sanders mm -hmm. in the background. Dave's yeah, Dave Ted, Sanders' yes. dad. Uh, mm -hmm. He was uh, a bit of a mentor of yours and a wonderful man uh, and one yeah, of the great coaches. Down at Hawthorne, mm -hmm. a great club. Mm -hmm. um, He's got high socks. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Looks, looks like he just got off the golf course, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was a hot day too. It was a hot, hot day. day shorts and mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But uh, we won't go too long about it. But you got you did a great ride in in in, the, in one of the either the test race of the title where you were away and you punctured, but you would have won. And so they picked you for that Commonwealth Games. This is a tragic story in that they picked uh, – uh, so Gary Clively is named in the Australian cycling team who's get, going to those games. And I think they actually left Clyde Sefton out because he didn't perform that well at those titles. But he was mm -hmm. the silver medalist from the Olympics uh, only, only two years earlier. So uh, – and then, but then when the team was announced, the whole uh, Commonwealth Games team, they decided to put Clyde Sefton in and drop you, Gary, but they didn't even bother to tell you. They just did that. Uh, I, I still right. find it one of the most ridiculous things Australian mm. cycling has ever done. So, uh, Well, you know, they they did uh, – they contacted Ted Sanders, actually, Dave's dad, yeah. Yeah. and uh, he, he came down to visit us and he broke the news that uh, I wouldn't be going to Christchurch. Uh as I understood it, he was asked if he could do it because they didn't want to deal with me directly. They didn't want to tell me directly. Um, they would rather have someone else break the news. And so I guess that let them off the hook. And uh, it was pretty disappointing. It was one thing to be disappointed about, you know, not going to the games, but to realise that uh, there was, uh, you know, a situation with the governing body at the time that it wasn't just my case, but a lot of people uh, had problems, you know, with uh, unfair situations and, you know, the, the reputation of the governing body at that time wasn't very good that way. No, you're, you're very, very, very right. And uh, so you're only 18. So you decide, bugger it, I'm going to Europe. So you, you and David Allen, Dumps, um, Donnie's younger mm -hmm. brother is decided it, is that, to. Uh, is this Dumps' photo here? That's, that's Dumps there. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's Dumps and I in a race uh, in Dandenong. And uh, he actually sprinted. He, it was a, like a circuit race. And two of us were together at the finish. And David sprinted towards the final corner to get in front of me because it was just 150 metres or so around the corner to the end. And uh, he went wide and I went under him. Uh, he had to, you know, stop himself from crashing, actually. And so I just sprinted through the inside and beat him. Normally he would be that far in front of me. But that day uh, yeah, he just overcooked it. Yeah, so and I love David the story. Was actually, David on. was at my house that morning when Ted Sanders came over to tell me. And it was uh, as soon as... Ted told me, I just turned to David and said, what do you reckon, shall we go to Europe? And uh, he said, let's do it. So we did it right away. We decided on the spot together that we would go together and that's what we did. Well, they say everything happens for a reason. Do you look back and say, well, that was meant to happen because it, it put a rocket up your ass? Yeah, well, once I decided to go, um, that was my focus from that time on. And I had an apprenticeship, which I quit. Um, and I got a job down in uh, in Mentone with David. And we worked in a steel yard for a couple of months and saved up enough for our airfares. And that was it. Off we went. So, yeah, it all happened very quickly, very quickly. I, I was just one way ticket. Sorry, oh, no, one way ticket. Yeah. yeah, you got there. You had no money. It's a great story. So they get there, and they were supposed to meet a guy named Harry Luther, who I got to know Harry, a bit of a character. Mm -hmm. But yeah. he was he wasn't there. He was actually in Spain, and he had a uh, he had a crash on his bike. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he ended up in hospital. So he was supposed to connect you with this team. So this team don't even know anything about you. So you contact them, you go along, and they, they're not even interested. An 18-year-old kid, a 17-year-old who can't even, who's too young oh, to yeah. race with them anyway. And you said, can we just go for a ride to training with, with your team? Yeah, sort of, and that's sort of, right, because we, we had no money left and we had nothing to lose. So we just thought, well, let's just let's see if we can go training with them just to buy another day to find out even once what it's like to ride with, uh, you know, full-time cyclists in Europe. And, uh, yeah, they said, okay, you know, come on then. Well, just for a joke, they thought, well, let's take them out in the middle of nowhere and lose them and uh, see if they can find their way back to the hotel. But, uh, yeah, we did all right against them and, and uh, the director sportive noticed that we were – actually two young, pretty talented young men, and they wanted to take us both on, um, but David being too young, they actually found him a what they used to call a third category, which is under-18 team, about 100K south of where we were, and they let me stay in a hotel, uh, $2 a day hotel, uh, and they gave me a jersey, and I, I started going to the races. So. I love the part when I was reading it. I love the part where mm. you didn't have enough money to even buy food. You had to get away to a race because at least you got fed all right and hopefully win enough in a bike race so that you could buy some food when you got back. That's exactly right. We we used to get back to the hotel after a race and after having divided up any prize money 
you might have 20 bucks. And straight down to the delicatessen downstairs and buy something to eat because uh, we were always hungry, always hungry. And, you know, I rode that first year, almost a whole year, probably four kilos under my normal weight because uh, they're just, you know, you were just training, racing. There wasn't that much food for us. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a... Uh, Jeez, it was a bit of a struggle. I love it's, the story. I love the story along that line. I think when you were over, it may be in Belgium just for the World Championships, but you were riding back from a from a, a Belgian race uh, and with an English guy, and you said, have you got any food? I think you're staying next to each other. And he said, no. He said, look, he said, I've got some potatoes. We can boil mm. them up. But then on the way, you went past a, a field that looked, it had that's spinach. Al- Alan there. Piper's story. That's Alan oh, Piper's it? story. Yeah, that's, oh. that's Piper, yeah. I was yeah. just about to say that your journey sounds very similar to Alan I've Piper. I've been watching them both today. I've got from uh, Melbourne. Yeah. Okay. Your research today is cherry ripe, Johnny. <laughs> but, Gary, it seems like there was a bit of a culture back in those days of these young Aussies that were just fearless. Like, let's just go, we'll work it out when we get there. You know, what? Was that so true. It was, uh, you know, that that first year that I went there with uh, Dumps, Dave Allen, um, there would have been probably another four or five Aussies in Italy. I think there was a few more up in Belgium. Uh, we were all pretty much, we knew each other from uh, racing in Victoria. And uh, so occasionally we'd cross tracks and, uh, you know, you'd hear how your mates were struggling. They, they weren't getting looked after uh, perhaps as much as I might have been or some of the others were. And uh, so that, that first year especially was uh, just a battle to even get through the year without going home because... Uh, it was very tough. Uh, you know, I went through a couple of periods where I I just thought I can't do it. I, I want to go home because, uh, you know, I missed I missed a lot of things about life in Australia. I missed uh, my family. And, uh, you know, it's not easy when you don't know the language and, you know, people take the piss out of you and... Uh, uh, it can be hard, and it's. It was only when I started to get results that uh, I got more encouraged, and, and I got a little bit more respect. So things got a little easier. But, but you know, um, we weren't actually winning much at first, and uh, it was pretty hard. We were uh, we were considered outsiders because, apart from uh, Phil Edwards from England uh, and Clyde Sefton. Uh, there were no other English-speaking or even foreign-speaking writers that I came across probably for that first year or even two years. So, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy in those days. Do you think that that experience made you hungrier because there's so much more at stake? You were so far out of your comfort zone compared to the other guys that could go home to a home-cooked meal to their families and all that sort of stuff? Um, not really. Um, my... Personal, my, my personal goal was to turn professional at some stage and, uh, you know, that's what I really live for. I just wanted to be 
a professional and I wanted to compete against or ride amongst the very best and just see, you know, how I went. So that was my motivation. And when things got tough, you know, I would, you know, I'd have a difficult time. But in the end, I reminded myself that that's what I still wanted to do. And and so I got back onto it, you know. But uh, I know homesickness was really hard for the guys in those days. All you had was a letter and, you know, you didn't uh, always get the letters that people sent you and, and you wrote letters home that didn't arrive. So, you know, uh yeah, it was you had to learn the language. You, yeah, you, you had to learn the language. I did, and I, I actually don't know how I did, but I I must have felt that need to uh, to learn the language because uh, I picked it up pretty quickly, and and uh, once I did that, I was okay because then I could talk to people, and I made friends outside the cycling world, and that really helped me, you know, to just orient myself a little, you know, in the culture there. We've got Very few, different to our culture. We've got a few live comments coming in uh, because there has been a build-up. We have had a few people saying, you got to get Gary Cliveley on. So there, there's oh. a lot of people that are very happy to see you. Uh, Wendy Superman says, hi, guys. Hi, Gary. But Tom Maloney says, I've been very fortunate to have enjoyed some personal contact with Gary Cliveley over the years in and out of cycling. He's an outstanding individual. He has an incredible story to tell. Now, the wheel wizard, he says, the 77 for Welter was especially designed to get world champ Freddie Martins with short TTs and not so big mountain <clears> stages <throat> to ride. Ironically, he won the prologue, was seen in the world champs jersey again. He says, Gary was two times third, one fifth, two sixth, one seventh, and seventh in the GC. The wheel wizard, he's the man that does the research for us. <laughs> Fantastic nice, nice. stuff. <laughs> um, Gary Tilly says the reputation of the governing body hasn't really improved over the journey <laughs> we've had the one wood out of recent times after the Olympics um, and Tom says the Australian cycling body has over the years had governance problems and maybe there again now I would think communication was a little bit better than the way they treated you but we don't know uh, and Will Wizard says, as Mark Meadows says, Aussies come to Europe as if they are going to war. They leave everything behind. Do you think that's a fair statement? It is because uh, what can you take with you but your bike? You know, you, your your life as an Australian in, in those days, and, and Mark Mario was, you know, he was a cyclist in the 80s, and uh, so he would have been familiar with uh, Phil Anderson, Alan Piper, and they were – of the same ilk as I was and Don Allen and others, um, you do leave it all behind because you can't take anything with you. You can't you can't just drive across the border and, uh, you know, visit your family. You really are on your own. And uh, if you're lucky enough to have mates, even Aussie mates there, they will put on you. But uh, I think we're all pretty isolated in those days. So, yeah. So in 1975, that's you're over there. You race if you joined this amateur team, Siapa, and you're starting to get a little bit of form. Then you go over uh, to Belgium for the World Championships. Things didn't mm -hmm. change from then because you put in a fantastic uh, performance on a really hot day in Belgium uh, and uh, finished fourth in in the World Amateur Road Title, which was a huge performance. Just tell mm -hmm. us about that day. Yeah, that day was uh, 
was a very strange kind of day. Uh, just remembering back, it was hot. It must have been 34 and uh, it was the end of August. And, uh, you know, we'd been up there for three or four weeks and it, it was mostly pretty sort of mild weather. So just coming in into that World Road Championship race uh, was hot. Uh, there were <clears throat> conditions applied to your feed. So you had, uh, I think, one feed during the race, which was 190 Ks. If you didn't get your, your bottle or bag or whatever, <clears throat> you were in big trouble. And uh, a lot of riders didn't because there were, I think, around 300 starters in that race. <clears throat> and part of the circuit was on the typical Belgian back roads, uh, you know, maybe a metre and a half road that went on for four or five k's up and down in a crosswind. So, you know, you can imagine 300 guys. you got uh, Poles, Russians, Italians wanting to be in the top 30 riders and it's just chaos. And there were guys falling off their bikes, doing somersaults into fields, yelling, you know, it was, it was just crazy. And uh, I think that part of the course really created a bit of a, sort of a an attrition by sort of crashes <laughs> but it was a hard course it was uh, undulating a few steep pinches here and there and uh it was very exposed uh, there was no coverage from houses trees nothing like that so uh it was a race of attrition and uh by the last lap um the, uh, I remember the poles went to the front on that narrow stretch of road and just put the hammer down and and I was the last rider to tack on the back of maybe 20 guys uh, and I just found myself, you know, weaving through these guys going, you know, left and right and uh, I just got on the back of, I think it was uh, Chiruti who actually beat me for the bronze. He and I were the last ones to get on and, and uh, from then on, we, we just raced that last lap flight out, not realising that there were two guys already a half minute in front of us. Because of all the chaos, uh, you know, just so many riders trying to sort of battle to the front of the peloton all day, you, you just you, you didn't realise that there might be guys in front. And there were two guys out in front that, that I didn't see anyway until probably five k's to go when they crested the the rise that was in front of the one that we just came up, up on. And, uh, yeah, so they were gone, Andre Gevers and uh, Swedish guy, was it Nilsson? I can't remember. Um, anyway, so we kind of realised, shit, uh, we're not going to catch them. We're riding for third. And so, yeah, 15, 20 of us sprinting for third, uh, which was uphill. Final K was just a grind, just a grind up to the line. Very hard, very, very hard. Yeah, but that's – so you from that you go back to Italy. So how the, – the pro contract, the interest came not long mm. after that. Just tell us about that. Okay. Uh, so we went back to Italy, which was um, by that stage uh, very early September. So within the next three weeks, uh, 
I rode a tour and I won the first stage there. So I got some attention for getting the jersey on the first stage, which was in the the Italian Alps. I won the first stage to a mountaintop finish. Um, I did all right in that stage race. I didn't win it, but I finished top 10. And then there were two more races that I rode and I won both of them. And as it turns out, the director of the Philotex team and the Manuflex team happened to be scouting around looking at a couple of other guys who I was racing against. And um, turns out I beat both of those guys in those two races, one in one race and the other guy in another race. And I got approached after the second win to um, by the Manuflex director, Primo Franchini, asking me if I would like to go training with the team on the following Tuesday, just as a bit of a, you know, get to know some pros, have a chat, you know, with uh, Primo, get to know him a little bit and see if we might talk about next year maybe. There was no actual talk about what we would do, but the idea was sort of, in the air that this might lead to something. Uh, so I went training with the team and uh, one of the guys who I who I beat in the, in the last race that I won, he was he was there too, Alfio Vandy, who ended up also joining the team and, and having a very successful pro career. So Alfio and I, Alfio and I rode with the, the guys from Manuflex and, um, gee, we did all right against them out training. They were very impressed. And Primo asked me, what do you reckon? Do you think you could get a pro license to come race with us next Saturday? And I said, oh, what about my team I'm with now? Like this was Tuesday. Uh, I've got to tell my, you know, director, I, I live with the family that supports the team and, oh, let's go for a drive. Okay, we'll go for a drive. Uh, I went in to see my director from the Siapa team, and I said, oh, look, I've had an offer to turn pro to race next Saturday in the Giro d'Emilia. Um, I'd like to do it. And he said to me, oh, are you crazy? You can't do that. You can- we're going to – next year we're going to do something big. Come on, like, why don't you stay with us? Uh, you can't. And when he said you can't, I thought, hang on. Yes, I can. Mm. I don't have a contract, and – you know, you're trying to tell me that I can't as if you owe me. And, and I, I thought, no, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going to take my chance. You know, the door's open and that's what you did in those days. If the door opened, you went right through it and it's just like being in a bike race. Your chance comes and you got to grab it. So I see I'm out of here. Sounds I like that scene off the me. castle, you know, when he goes, tell him to get stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there was something about being an Aussie, you know, just yeah. just had that uh, compulsion or the impulse, yeah, and you believed in it, <clears throat> and so you just followed, you followed your heart, and that's what I do. Then, uh, <laughs> Will Wizard's got a good question. If he uh, he yeah. says, "What does Gary remember about the 16 256 kilometer stage of the 76 Giro that finished in Erosio, won by mm. De, uh, De Vlamic?" Second, Giamondi. Third, Moser. Fourth, Gary Clivey. And sixth, a guy called Eddie Merckx. 
What do you reckon of that day, mate? I do remember that day very well. <clears throat> um, that was, I think, uh, the last week of the Giro. Another hot day. There were so many hot days. Uh, we had to climb Madonna del Gisela twice uh, towards the end, and, and we came off the, that the last time. And then from the bottom of the descent, I think it was about maybe 10-odd Ks to the finish at uh, Arosio, and uh, there might have been a dozen guys, 15 guys. Um, in the last kilometre, we are all starting to string out because uh, Merckx had Jos Bruyere, who was, you know, a faithful lieutenant. He went on the front to lead out, and he just, okay to go, he just went to the front and started winding up. And it was, again, one of these long uphill drags they used to love to give to us to finish on. And I, uh, I had De Vlaming's wheel, just, you know, just found myself on his wheel. And he was on Moses' wheel. <clears throat> and Moses was following Briere. So I thought, oh, this is looking all right. I, I might finish top 10 if I can just hang on. Like, I already knew that when De Vlaming kicked, there was no way that I would be able to kick with him because... He was just incredible. I mean, when he took off, it was phenomenal. The amount of, uh, I don't know what the wattage was in those days, but, geez, you know, he was incredible. Such a, an amazing cyclist. And uh, maybe 200 metres to go, somebody comes up beside me and grabs me by the hip, pulls me back and puts himself right on Roger's wheel I had to kind of regain and uh, follow up on the wheel of that rider, who uh, that was Jimondi, and uh, he had the pink jersey, so he, he thought he had a right, and I followed them. I followed that uh, those four guys to the line. Moser took off. Divlamic, sure enough, kicked past him, and I just followed uh, Jimondi to the to the line in fourth place, and uh, yeah. But I wasn't happy with with Jumondi at all because he'd actually asked me if I wanted to join his team the next year, and I was thinking that would be wonderful because you know he was a hero of mine. He had the pink jersey, and I, I had a lot of respect for him. But uh, that incident put an end to that. Very disillusioned with him, and uh, it actually had a lot to do with you know what I what I went through at the end of my cycling life at uh, at the end of the welter in 77 so yeah well, let's let's, yeah. let's move on to that because i know we're here about the welter and, and not, i don't want to yeah because it's important stuff so so you were only 20 when you rode that that uh, giro which was uh, you know sort of may uh, uh, of 76 <clears> then the following <throat> year the welter used to be the first uh, grand tour so it was straight after leo's best on leo so uh, april mm -hmm. um so you're 21 and you're at the Vuelta. So, and of course, it's the famous Vuelta where uh, Freddie Martin's won 13 stages. And, uh, yeah. overall. So take us through a, a little bit of that wonderful uh, event. And as I said at the start of the show, you became the first Australian to finish in the top 10 of a Grand Tour, which is amazing. Um, okay, the Vuelta, again, we, uh, we came... 
from Belgium where we, my team had, had gone up to ride uh, Tour of Flanders and then a few days later we rode uh, Flash Wallonne. Now, both of those races were below 10 degrees. The, the flesh will own it snowed. It, you know, it was below five. It, it was chilly. You finished the races frozen through and through. And, uh, you know, so much cobblestones, it takes you a few days to get your feet back, uh, to thaw out, and, and even to think seriously about going training again. But we went from there and uh, we went back to Italy packed another bag and we flew straight to the, the Vuelta. And uh, the Vuelta, you know, it's 35 degrees. Uh, so it's a big shot, not just for us, for, but uh, for anyone coming from the northern races. Uh, you know, it takes, a, it takes a little bit of getting used to. Um, we had a prologue, then we had a one or two uh, sort of bunch sprint finishes. And then we had a, a very hilly stage on the third day and I remember Fieder Den Hertog uh, from the Frizol team took off like about 100 k's to go and just smashed the race to pieces. And uh, it, it became a scramble because he, he took off on the bottom of a, a long climb and uh, it, it wasn't like uh, he was a great climber or something, but uh, he was just having a good day and... And honestly, most of the field were in big trouble because of the heat. And so that day, um, you know, 100 Ks, I was in the second group chasing behind Den Herdog. It was Mertens and maybe four or five others. And then I was with uh, Polentier, one of my teammates, Herletto, and, and a couple of others. And... Uh, you know, we were just glued to the road. It was so hot. I was thinking, geez, we're going to be outside the time limit. You know, we're just dead, honestly, like just struggling. And uh, about 20 Ks to go, I exchanged looks with uh, Polentier and he looked at me and I looked at him. We're going like, we're not even going to get to the finish. It's so hot. There's no water. You know, you can't go back to your team car in those days to get water. Your biddings are gone, you know, an hour or two ago. You're just, uh, you know, struggling to get to the finish, and which we did, and turns out uh, we were only a few minutes behind them. So uh, I was just in the top ten and on the third day in the GC, and I, I was really surprised. Uh, you know, I didn't think that I'd, I'd be anywhere near that. And so things just began to evolve. Uh, every day, Freddie Mertens and his Flandria boys just put the hammer down about an hour to go. There was always hot winds, so they, they just waited till there was a crosswind, put the hammer down. If you survived, then uh, you just gradually improved in the GC. If you didn't make it there, you could lose 20 minutes. You know? and, and I was inspired, and, and I started going better and better every day. And, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I made it into the break every day. I've, I climbed almost as better than I'd ever done before. It wasn't a super hilly welter, but, you know, it, there were climbs. Every day there was something. And uh, 
every day it was over 34 degrees. Like, you know, it was hot. We had one rainy day, but uh, it was just surviving, surviving the long stages and the long efforts to stay with uh, the leading group, you know, when the hammer went down, you know, 50, 60K to go. They just, they wanted to train hard. They wanted to race hard because they were going to do the, the Giro. So every day was hard work, hard work. Yeah. And they you were said, phenomenal. Yeah, Freddie Mertens, Polantier, geez, you know, those guys were, Polantier won the Giro, you know, Freddie won the, the Vuelta. They were the best in that in those times at what they were doing. Honestly, yeah. you you said in that video that we showed earlier that there was a punch <clears throat> on. Uh, you get punched in the head by an Italian rider. What what happened in that instance? Oh, that was actually my first race as a pro. Oh. So yeah, that that wasn't in the world. That was my first race as a pro, where that was my initiation. Into okay. uh, w- welcome to the pro ranks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now that's seventy-seven. So by the end of seventy-seven, you've got disillusioned, and we'll go into all of the the, the reasons of that uh, later. But so you came home, and mm-hmm. you h- hung up the bike. You you completely have cycling, as you said. You were soul searching, um, and you were nearly ten <laughs> years off the bike, and then. You decided, well, then we've got someone in the wings. I think he's hiding in there somewhere. Well, I think before we do, we're going to have to have a drinks break, Iffy, because okay. uh, we're yep. about halfway through. Uh, so let's yep. have a quick drinks break, quick message from uh, Bike Exchange and Amy Gillen Foundation. On the other side, we have Dave Sanders, who's arguably one of Australia's greatest cycling coaches. He's worked with the likes of Cadell Evans, Baden Cook, Simon Guerin, Simon Clark, Brett Lancaster and Anna Wilson. Uh, and he spent 26 years at the VIS and rode himself. It'll be after the break, and uh, we'll continue the story with Gary Clively. Look at this bike. You think it's just a bike, right? But it's not. <clears throat> it's a bike. 374 people are looking at. This guy, this girl, them, all looking at it. People from here, there, and wherever this is people that are looking for a bike or just a piece of it amateurs semi-amateurs and pro amateurs this guy wants this bike but with this crank and these bars this could be the perfect match but not this one this girl has a bike to sell and thousands of people might purchase it eyes on bikes help grow small businesses his hers yours and the latest data and insights help those businesses keep moving We are the world's number one bike marketplace with over 500,000 products and 900 brands where buyers and sellers are brought together in a place where a bike is never just a bike. Bike Exchange, where the world buys, sells, learns and rides. Life is like a two-way street. It's about consideration and mutual respect. Roads are much the same. However you get around, walk, ride or drive, if we share our roads, we can all be safer. The Amy Gillett Foundation is Australia's peak cycling safety charity. Our mission is for safe cycling in Australia. Our vision is for zero cyclist deaths. Over the last year, we've seen an enormous increase in people taking up cycling, whether it be for recreation, with the family, 
commuting or even to start your own cycling career. We need to do more to make it safer for every cyclist. 20 cyclists every day are hospitalised and one cyclist is killed every 10 days on Australian roads. So, the next time you jump on your bike or hop in your car, remember to practice the four C's. Be courteous, calm, considerate and conscientious. Every cyclist's death is preventable and we all deserve to get home safely. Please donate to help the Amy Gillett Foundation make the road safer for you and for me. Thanks again to Bike Exchange and great messages there from the Amy Gillett Foundation. And we're joined by the great Dave Sanders. How are you, Dave? Evening, guys. Yeah, all good here. Thank you very much. Hey, Harry. Hey, <laughs> now, with lockdown, no. some people might not have seen you for a while, Davo, and they, they might be getting worried. Can you just please calm them down and explain that you're doing a lot of Ks on the bike? Hence yeah, the I, don't have an Ill- I don't have an illness. Uh, I've I found the love for the – well, I have my, I've had a few illnesses over the years. I've found the love for the, turning the pedals again, and uh, I've been out riding with Gary when we can uh, up to recent months, and – Hearing these great yarns around the bike cars, it's just been a real pleasure. But it's uh, it's it was a matter of turning negative into a positive. For the first time in thirty odd years, I wasn't traipsing around the world or chasing other people. I thought, well, I'm locked down here. What am I going to do? So just looked after my diet a bit and got on the bike and come out side other side of a new man. It's good. Now, Dave, I don't want to sound like I'm nagging you. But I'm very particular with audio on this show. Can you untangle yep. your headphones and have? Because you've got the microphone on the side there, it's rubbing yep. on your neck. Right. So you need it sort of hanging loose. I'll put them. So you, you, yeah. you've, you've wrapped around. That's it. That's there you it. go. Way better. There you go. Have a listen. How's to that? that? Perfect. Right. <laughs> John. Onwards. So it's like like being married. <laughs> We're going through a short. Now, there's a close association between the Sanders uh, 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 family uh, and the Cloverly family. Uh, um, Gary's brother is uh, best mate to, uh, of Davo. So, Davo, tell us a story. So, oh, quickly. Gary, Gary, oh, Gary, Gary. We'll cut yeah. past that. Gary's come home. He's a long while off the bike. <clears> and then Terry has mentioned to you. That, Look, Gary uh, and I grew up together. The families are close. Terry's still my best mate. We've seen him all the time. And we were just Christmas drinks, which we had every seven days or so during those periods <laughs> for, for a decade or so. Um, and we are just talking about Gary. Where's Gary? Which we did the year before and the year before that. And oh, I, don't know, he's, oh, I think I know where he's up. It's in Kilda somewhere. And we just made a pack. Well, we've got to go and find him. And uh, nothing to do with cycling, just... Um, to do with uh, just just socially and where he's at, what's going on, and which we decided to do. So Terry did his research, and we within a week or a couple of weeks went. We did go and find Gary, um, living in a looked like the uh, that house from the Young Ones or the Adams Family, you know, with a, <laughs> sort of uh, some some cool dudes all cruising around, but. Um, uh, it was Gary. I knew Gary was very pleased to see us, and we we just had a chat. And he uh, had his partner, a lovely little little daughter there, and we went out for a night, uh, just local band, um, which uh, I didn't know where it was, but Gary reminded me recently. It's one of, one of Jerry Ryan's pubs now, but, um, the Prince. Prince and, uh, yeah. yeah, 
and um, and we just said that was that was fine. And I mean, just in conversation, I don't know if it was then or a bit later. I said to Gary, "Why don't you come and what are you doing or whatever? Come and maybe do a couple of days work at the bike shop. I had a shop down in Chelsea. I don't know if we needed him, but just to get him out into the into our, into the world again." Uh, not necessarily our world, but we just missed him and he was a big part of who we were as kids and I'd witnessed his amazing cycling career. Um, anyway, a long story short, I would say it was a couple of months later, he gave me a ring and said, uh, you know, you can still find something to do. I said, yeah, sure. So Gary turned up down at the shop and he came down on the train and we found him a, bit, a few things to do and he uh, and he was coming down on the train Every day or every whenever it was, and I said, "Well, Gary, it's, it's you know, why don't you just roll down on a bike? It's not that far." And I actually used to think Beach Road was flat, and now it's found Scott Mountains in it. But um, <laughs> I said it'd be pretty simple ride down, wouldn't it? And he said, oh, "I don't." He, I remember him saying, "I don't think I could make it that far. I wouldn't get that far." So, what do you mean you wouldn't get that far? One of the greatest cyclists we've ever had. Anyway, cutting further down the chase. I forget exactly the, what day or whatever, but I think he said, oh, look, I might just have a have a pedal around or whatever. So we got a bike, ordin- a good bike, an ordinary bike off the shelf. And um, that he, he did start riding to work on that. Cut to another end of it. Eventually he said, oh, I might just put a good pair of wheels in this bike. No, whatever. Not, none of us were contemplating or imagining anything more than riding to work and getting a little bit fit. Um, and then the next thing I didn't know, but I heard, and I'd heard people saying, "Oh, was that Gary Clyde? saw out in the Dandenongs on the weekend, or was that?" I said, "Oh, it probably was," but I didn't. We didn't know that it was moving to this level. Then I hear Gary's turned up out at um, what used to be VFL Park Tuesday night races, and this is a great story. He he's lined up to um, um, enter and. Uh, and they and they said, oh, what, what grade do you want to ride in? Have you raced before? Oh, yeah, I've raced before. Oh, we'll put you in C or D grade or something. And he said, no, I'd like to ride in A grade. Oh, no, no, you start down in C grade. And old Lorraine Collins, who was a stalwart of the club for many years, turned and heard the voice and said, is that you, Gary? And she said, oh, hello, Lorraine, yeah, it's me. And she said to the guy handing out the numbers, if, if this guy wants to ride in A grade, you put him in A grade. And... Uh, that was the beginning of it, and Gary started racing again, which we never imagined would happen, but he did. And story goes from there. I think he, he might have missed the break that night, but was never missed a break from then on. Front group every night, and the kids were saying, "Who is this old guy? You know, what's going on here?" And um, they were about to find out who he was. Within a, within, and as you said, within a year, I think he'd won the Victorian Road title and the following year he won the Australian Road Championship and most of the classics around the country. Earn so respect. I have to ask you, Gary, what was it that made you become disillusioned with the sport and, and to walk away? Um, gee, that's a bit of a complicated question. What made me become disillusioned? Um, I guess it was... Uh, in those days, <clears throat> there was a bit of, uh, you know, sort of mafia in the racing. So, uh, you know, you, you had to conform to the dictates of a small group of riders. And, and this isn't in, in all of the uh, open events, but 
things like circuit races, criteriums, uh, some of the smaller races, you know, there was always somebody telling you what to do and what you should do and what you could do and couldn't do. And, uh, you know, every time you did something they didn't like, then someone would come and be very angry with you. And, and uh, you know, I was probably a little bit kind of independent. I wanted to race the way I wanted to race. And uh, I rubbed up uh, badly against a few people in those uh, seasons that I raced there and eventually I got banned from all of the invite races and uh, I started to get a reputation as uh, someone who, who just didn't want to cooperate and that's not a nice place to be when you're racing in a peloton, I tell you. Uh, and, and so I was ostracised gradually and uh, I was also disillusioned with... Uh, my team, I thought my teammates were lazy and so, you know, I, uh, I stopped expecting anything from them and, and I, I kind of had a falling out at the end of the welter with my team and, yeah, I just started thinking, well, you know, what's going on? Is this what I really want to do? Do I want to do this for the next 10 years? the way things are at the moment. And uh, I, it took me, you know, months and months, but eventually I, I decided that I think I'm going to go home and then I'll see what I want to do once I get there. And uh, so that's what I did. I went home. We've lost Dave. Came home. Probably come back. Yeah. <laughs> um, when, when you did get back, did you have any regrets at any point thinking, oh, hang on, what have I done? Or was it you realised it was the right call? Uh, no, I didn't have any regrets. I had plenty to go on with and uh, it was really, it was only, you know, years and years later that uh, I, I was going through another one of these situations, difficult situation, and, uh, you know, that I also started working with Dave at that time and just got a bit of a, a hankering to go for a ride. And, and once I started getting back on the bike again, the whole thing came back, but uh, I was different by then and, and I didn't care at all what other people were thinking about what you should and shouldn't do. So, you know, I, I was riding, you know, in a way as a free man, whereas when I was younger, I was naive and, I, you know, I, I was easily led and easily confused. So it was different. It was different later on when I started cycling again, but I didn't miss it too much in the meantime. I remember when when you, when you did uh, make that comeback, um, and uh, I remember talking to Davo, uh, and I had a bike shop down in in Geelong. We had a small bike team, and uh, so um, I offered you a huge contract. I mean, much bigger than what you're getting in Europe. I think it was a jersey and a pair of wheels, but um, uh, bike power. And there's a that's you winning that Australian uh, title. Give me a good plug, thanks, mate. And we'll go through that in a minute. But I remember you were really starting to find form. We also had a bit of a mountain series and we had a race in the Yu Yangs and uh, you creamed them. There were some good bike riders there, really good bike riders, and you you won it. You rode away from them. It was a, a criterium up the Yu Yangs climb and uh, mm -hmm. I think you won it by a couple of minutes and that's when I realised, wow, 
been away for 10 years and uh, it looks like uh, you've never been away. Yeah, John, thanks very much for that uh, sponsorship. It was very, very handy, believe me. <laughs> um, yeah, no, those, uh, those, those years, those races, those midweekers, they were actually very, very hard to win. Um, uh, it was Omar Palov that, that just kept winning and winning. If you beat him, you were going well. And uh, uh, there were two races in the Yangs. One of them I did win and another one that I finished with uh, Omar, who won, and uh, Agostino Giramondo, who, who I work with now, Ago. And uh, Ago and I, I can't remember who was second, who was third, but, uh, yeah, those midweekers were actually very tough because uh, you'd race Saturday, Sunday, probably went training Tuesday, raced your races on the Wednesday and then had to go training again on Thursday. Of course, everyone's working. You know, you're not like a pro rider. You're you're working part time, full time, and and so yeah, hard racing. Now the Australia title that was a, a fa- mm. that was out at Lara. I remember it well. And in the end, you're, there was only three of you left. There, there was uh, Eddie Sellis, um, Scotty, Scott Stewart. Uh, Scott Stewart, Scott Stewart. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and you, and they were teammates. They were both riding for, for the, the Repco, whatever it was called, team. So I thought, oh, um, look, you know, that's yeah. it, going to be a bummer. I'm watching it. I think oh, you're going to run third. Oh, what a shame. Tell us about that finale because uh, you, you, you mm. outsmarted them. Yeah. Um, so uh, I had two flat tyres that day. And the second one, you gave me the wheel, the front wheel, and, and I was ready to pull out because I didn't feel very good. And I thought, well, that's it. It's pouring rain. I'm done. I, I just don't have anything. And it turned out when I pulled over to change the wheel, my mother and my sister were right there. They just happened to be there. And when you were putting the wheel, my front wheel in, my mum said to me, come on, you're doing well. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. And I didn't say anything to her, but I thought, well, I can't just pull out, you know, in front of my mum and my sister. They've come all this way and they're standing out in the rain to encourage me. So I got back on and I I chased through the group, sorry, through the the convoy, caught the group, and as I caught the group, uh, I could see that uh, Eddie Salas and uh, Paul Miller were out in front. And I thought, well... I'm riding with Paul and Peter Basanko that day. We agreed that we would help each other. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to, you know, try and help Paul, even though I, I didn't think he would win, but I thought, okay, he's defending champion, give him a shot. And uh, as I rolled through the group coming back on, Scott Stewart took off on the left and I just went around the group to cover that move not expecting it to do anything. And and Scott went clear with me and, you know, we had 50 metres. We were between the, the two in front and, and the group, you know, and there was only like half a dozen back there, if so. So I said to Scott, what do you want to do? And he said, well, we might as well go on with it. Okay, so we started working turns and we came – Took us a while, but we caught. We came close to catching the two in front, 
Eddie Salas and Paul Miller and Scott stopped coming through. And I said, what's going on? He goes, I can't, I can't. And as you know, when, when someone tells you that and they have a teammate in front, you know that as soon as you get on, he's going to attack. So I thought, okay, that's what I've got to watch for. When we get on, Scott is going to go. So I kind of uh, just tempoed on and sure enough, Scott's taken off. And, and, you know, Scott was extremely strong and it was a crosswind when he went. Paul went straight out the back and I followed Eddie and and Scott for a few hundred metres and uh, they started pulling over to do turns and I thought, well, what am I going to do? You know, Scott's very, very strong. I've just come back from two flat tyres. You know, I better watch it. I didn't think I would win, but I thought I've got to play it cool. So I said to them, I tell you what, I'm going to follow. If I can't come through, I'll, I'll just ride third. I'll take third. And Scott did a, a huge turn, like three Ks on the front, just grinding like, you know, 60 Ks an hour. And when he pulled over, I kind of recovered a little. And I started coming through, and as we came to the finish, I said to the two of them, guys, I've been working, I'm going to sprint. Oh, hang on, you said you wouldn't sprint. I said, yeah, but I've been working, so I'm going to sprint. Fair's fair. All right. They probably thought, who cares, you know, Gary can't sprint anyway. Eddie's a renowned sprinter. And uh, what I noticed with them was that uh, they were riding – you know, something like 53, 15, and I knew that the finish was going to be in a tailwind and that we would gradually swing around to the left and, and we'd pick up a tailwind. So as we approached that bend in the road, I put my gear to my 12 cog, which is what we rode in those days, 53, 12, and as we swung around into the tailwind, I just went around them and I started winding up my my 12 and thinking I've got a tailwind, it's going to pick me up, let's see what they'll do. And they didn't get near me and I think they were gone anyway. They were, they were cooked and I I actually, in the last couple of k's of that race, I felt, I suddenly felt really good again, like I, I really recovered myself. And uh, once I got to the front, I thought, well, who's going to beat me now? They can't get me. I felt good. Since and I, I had my 12 yeah. spinning. I've got goosebumps. But as we, once we got past the line, I heard all about it. You this and you that. And I, and, uh, I think it was Eddie said to me, you're not a professional. And I said, well, you don't know what a pro is, mate. I've had it up the backside so many times. I know what a pro is. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, I, I can't hear you, mate. I can't hear <laughs> losers. <laughs> so, look, while, while, while we've got the, all you guys here, we haven't even spoken about the uh, the amazing stage uh, last night uh, of the of the Vuelta. <laughs> so I just thought we'd just touch a bit on it uh, because it was uh, a stage and a half. And, uh, we had an Aussie, an aspiring yeah. young Aussie. It was almost an aspiring uh, story, as uh, inspiring a story as yours, Gary, in Jay Vine, who ended up, Finishing third on the stage after this, I mean, he hit, he, he caught up in the car, getting a bidden, uh, and managed to uh, 
<clears throat> make a mess of himself, did the stitches in the arm. I thought his race was over when that happened. I thought, oh, he's not going to get up. Got up, they stitched him up, or they got <clears throat> him, patched him up. And not only did he come back, he's done an amazing ride to, to finish third in a really tough mountain uh, mountain finish. So uh, well, brilliant. We've got a question for Davo from John Bodie. He says, it seems to me there are a lot more crashes nowadays. Am I correct? If so, why do you think there is so many crashes? It's an interesting question and it's an interesting conversation. There's always been crashes. I remember Cadell used to say to me, my only thing I worry about riding the tour is getting through the first week. And so once we get to the hills, we can race. It was it's always been mad. If you if you go back and you remember the days of uh, when um, uh, Froome's first started, you know, he, he crashed out several times the first week. But the other side of it is, is now it's more frantic. There's all this. Um, there's so much about points. It's all radio controlled. Everyone's got directors telling them to ride the front, ride the front, get get to the front, ride the front. Guys are not doing as many races. They're not as experienced. Like you got, you just talked about young Jay Bine riding Grand Tours, his first year pro. Um, mm. And and these kids, kids, well, our kids, kids coming out of juniors and going pro tour. And there's just not the experience there used to be, where guys would race, you know, 100 and whatever races a, a year. They're coming, they've got big motors, big numbers, and they're good enough physically to be in the race, but they don't have the experience, they don't have the background that, you know, pros of old. And there's a lot less respect. It's just not the respect there used to be. You know, I don't care what jersey you're on, you get wiped off the wheel, and it's it's messy. And all those factors together is, is the reasons why you're getting so many crashes, I think. That's a bloody good answer. Yeah. <laughs> if he could have nailed that <laughs> eloquently, most riders oh, also have a lot of. What are you saying, Gary? I was going to say, uh, in earlier times, cyclists also rode track season. They had a lot of experience of uh, riding in very tight knit groups, criteriums on Sunday, track racing all through summer. You learn to handle your bike from a very young age, and uh, that, I think that's missing. You know, if you're on your exercise bike or your ergo, and you're not riding in a peloton frequently, you lose touch, yeah. and uh, you can get in trouble very and, quickly. And, and and I think what we've seen in just this second half or this this year. Nobody raced enough last year. They even come in where they didn't have a lot of the classics early in the year and we're still missing racing. And that's why you just do lose touch and you lose that automatic feeling of, of managing a peloton. Mm. Yeah. Um, we have gone quite a lot longer on the show than we normally go. So I'll, I'll just quickly wrap up on, on uh, uh, the GC because we've got Jack, Jack Hay who's uh, sitting sixth but really – Really in fourth fourth place as far as the GC. It'll all change tonight because it's a monster stage. But I just thought one of the things we spoke about uh, uh, last night was um, how handling um, life in lockdown, you know, so, some uh, some of the ways that, um, you know, a lot of people are struggling uh, in being in lockdown, not being able to get out. And I've had a, a few emails today with some interesting ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but of how you handle it, <clears throat> one guy 
Rick is just going to toughen up. But um, oh, what else did he say? The fat, yeah. the fat, he called you the fat guy. But uh, the fat ball guy that winds you up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so put, 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 keep your keep, emails respectful. Bit harsh, bit hard. Uh, but another, uh, another really nice one of a, of a young, of a guy whose son, eighteen-year-old, is mm. is uh, going to Europe, racing in the in the uh, um, under twenty-three uh, Flanders and that coming up. So uh, and how he loves the detour. But I just wanted to touch with both uh, Gary and Dave on on any thoughts they've got on on how people can handle uh, the situation that some people are finding themselves in with a bit of a challenge. Yeah, well, it's, 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 I talk about you, you've got to do physical training. You also need to do mental training and to get you through a lot of things in life. I could wander off into philosophic conversations here, but the biggest thing is, and, and I keep talking about it, is as hard as we reckon it is, would you rather be here or in Afghanistan? Would you rather be here on the generation before us in, in the world wars or whatever else? This is our world war. And we just have to 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 structure your days. I mean, I thought the same thing when this has started. I'm going to sit around and get eat and drink and get batter and whatever or get some discipline and for once in my life I can control what I'm doing and turn a negative into a positive. And you really have to use mental strength even you get your bike if even if you only go 5k from home that's still 10k there and back you still find a lap and you can do you know you can do two hours around the block up and down i once did six and a half hours with simon garens at lavinio and we never went further than 10k from home up and down up and down up and down around you can do it you can always talk about Mm. don't talk about what you can't do talk about what you can do and you can find Mm. things to do 100 percent you can what about you, Gary? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it's important to be busy in in some way. If you're able to, if you're a you know a cycling person and you're able to have the time to go cycling, uh, go out on your bike, do something on your bike. Even if, as Davo says, you know you go five k this way, five k that way. You know, when I'm not working, I'm out on my bike. Um, it's it's it just works wonders for clearing, you know, my head. Uh, Absolutely. Keeps me, keeps me emotionally in touch and physically on top of, uh, you know, my condition. And uh, I'm able to then go to work when I can. I'm able to, you know, have the strength to get through my day, maintain some kind of uh, engagement Uh Personally, I, I'm, you know, I, I've been interested in this situation that's going on in a global sense. So I, you know, I do a lot of research into the the situation at large, and I find that helps me a lot. It gives me a lot to think about. You know, uh, I talk to people and I listen to people. I listen to people a lot who who have different ways of looking at the situation we're in, and I agree with Davo that that we are in kind of a wartime situation, you know, um, it, it is a sort of a life and death thing. You know, you've got to decide uh, how you're going to approach the future, you know. Are you going to live by 
mandates or are you going to find other ways to deal with the situation? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult. And uh, my hat's off to everyone who's, who's trying in some way to be engaged and to do something about their situation. Be healthy, um, get some sleep, look after mm. yourself, talk to your friends, be yep, you know, kind yeah. to people. That's it. Free, free rangers, and this is a good point, probably the worst thing to say to a person with depression and anxiety is harden up or cheer up. 100%. That, that mentality is gone. It's bullshit. It makes actually a problem worse. And this harden up thing is why we got into a big problem in the first place. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of compassion. And that really pisses me off, anyone that says harden up. It's, it, it actually is harder to talk up. It's easier to say nothing. So, yes. you know, I think harden up to just a cop out. So. And, and I think that's the important thing. I think we're all touching on, on that. But a lot of people, once they get into, especially if they're isolated, they're not mm. talking. So I encourage people, if you're feeling a bit down, ring somebody. You need to, well, we've offered anyone, anyone of our, our detour degenerates to, to send to an email, email to Johnny and a couple today uh, and, and, or give us, and I'll <clears> give you my number. Happy to, to talk to anyone because it's all about telling people how you feel, mm -hmm. talking to someone, and realizing there are a lot of people struggling. There's nothing, mm -hmm. no weakness in no. having a challenge like that. No. It's just, it's a part of life. So, need to talk and open up, and that's uh, um, the way moving forward. That's right. Speaking up yeah. is the first first step to a long journey on you know finding better ways of managing depression anxiety because it's you know it's not just a snap your fingers it, you you got to do it you, you have to do it because isolation's no good so anyway but uh i just, I just want to really uh thank you gary uh yeah for coming on yeah you're a legend yeah, i can't I, wait i enjoy it i can't wait thank until you this, thanks uh, guys Lockdowns no, no, out of the way, good. and we'll go for a pedal. We'll get uh, you and yeah. Dave O, we'll get Donnie Allen, and we'll go. Uh, we'll yes, I'm ready. Let's uh, do uh, it. Yeah, I think the, the big takeaway for me, Gary, is just <clears throat> stick to your gut, find your passion, but don't be afraid to tell them to get staffed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to do that from time to time. That's right. You got to clear That's the right. air. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was fantastic. Try not show, to be. Mate. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thanks no for right. inviting me, guys. Two See weeks. ya. Thanks, Have a good night. Go. Bye. Too, mate. Bye. Gary Cliver, legend. Okay, of the so Grand we better Sport. quick quickly talk about Amila. Uh, yes, uh, yes. We're, we're gone overboard on the on the show tonight, but it was great right. to catch up with one of the real specials. Yes, I have. I have your yep. scripts. Yep. Good job. <laughs> Discover a tropical playground of powdered sugar sand, lush jungle, and crystalline waters. Amila Maldives Luxury Resort reeks of timeless style and endless bliss. Stand by for unexpected treats and indulgences. Delighting and surprising you is their hallmark. Miller's motto is to exceed your expectations. The sky is the limit. Perfect, Diffie. And um, that's obviously talking about the very loud silent auction we've got going to raise money for the Kareka Foundation. Uh, and if you do want to make a bid, that's for two uh, adults, two children, 
five nights accommodation uh, in the Ocean Villa as uh, breakfast, dinner, and Jason and the team will definitely look after you. So send your bids through to John at cyclingevents.com.au. Where are we at? If he still at five thousand two hundred and fifty, hasn't gone up from there yet, but uh, we've got another week dollars. to go. Yeah, Australian dollars, and yep. the prize is yep. worth over thirteen and a half grand. Uh, yeah, Aussie. So there you go. Big show. Who's yep. your prediction for stage 15? I miss he's the sheriff. I'm trying to get Jackie Haig on the show tomorrow. Yeah, rest so, day tomorrow. Uh, It'd be great to talk to Jack. Um, yeah, look, it's a tough one. Uh, because of what's going on, the GC guys, they surprised me. They didn't uh, They didn't put the hammer down yesterday, only in the last part, last two or three Ks of the climb. I mean, uh, uh, the, the race leader, uh, odd Christian Iking the Viking, um, mm. virtually only lost the wheel in the last five or 600 metres. That won't be the case tonight. It's a monster of a day. <coughs> but the GC, <coughs> GC contenders didn't uh, um, play it out very hard. I think they will tonight, and I reckon we'll see um, a, a big... Uh, challenge. If you get that map up again and you have a look at uh, at the way it goes, you have a look. You've got two uh, uh, Category 1 climbs, uh, a Category 2, a Category 3, and then downhill to the finish. I think that it'll be such a hard day. Um, I, it'll be an interesting one. Um, I'll give Jack Haig a bit of a chance down that hill into the finish. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give him a bit of a chance, so I'll, I'm going to back him. Okay, back Jack. Yep. Hashtag back Jack. Yep. Um, yeah. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, as we always say, uh, make sure you like and share and subscribe the YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash the Detour Podcast. Yes. And apologies to the girls in the Simic uh, 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 Ladies Tour of Holland, which we put off talking about yesterday because we ran out of time and we've done it again tonight. But we will talk about them because they finished tonight. We'll give them a wrap-up and see if I can get one of the girls uh, uh, from from the race uh, on as well. So we'll give them their their, their, their moment that I should have had over the last two days. Uh, and and Dave Dave Sanders, his phone cut out and then he's clicked it again. But Gary's gone, mate. You're a bit late. <laughs> well, I had, that, had your microphone in and it, you maybe had it and I've run, run out of battery. I did charge it a bit there while it was. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right, Dave. We just want to thank you so much for coming on, uh, Dave. Um, and uh, we've just done our final wrap up the show. But um, look, look forward to uh, catching up. As I said to Gary, when this lockdown's over, we'll get out the box, we'll get Donnie Allen. Gary, yourself, and myself. Mate, and we'll I've got out. a new. I've got a brand new bike from. He doesn't know it yet. He rides around a thing you wouldn't deliver papers on, but and mm. I don't think that's right. So he's got something special for him when we meet up next. Oh, good very stuff. good. Yes. Have you got any? Uh, we'll give you the final word to the listeners, Davo. What's the final bit you want to I'll say? I'll tell you. The the word is the. In my mind, the GC race will really begin tonight. You can see the way they ride last night. All under, still under control. It's going to mm. let loose. Feathers will fly tonight, I believe. And, who, and who's your yeah. tip? Oh, right. We'll let loose, I think. Because he's got to get that time back. You know, he still hasn't got it. You know, he's got to, he's got to open gaps and smash people. And I hope he All will. Right. All right. Stay tuned. We'll see you again tomorrow night, folks. 6.30 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time on The Detour. Thanks for tuning in. Okay. So this 